Our reading today is from Matthew 25. For it will be like a man going on a journey who has called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. Well, here we are. Uh, I wanted to say a few words just kind of to you all also. I wanted to say thank you very much. So this three years has been, has been a wonderful journey for, uh, for our church, for our family, uh, for me uh, personally, and that would not have been possible without all of you. Uh, I frequently say to our congregation in Palos, I'm sure I've said it here before as well, uh, you can do a lot of things, and as Christians we should be doing a lot of things, but the most you can do is pray. And so I want to say thank you for your prayers. Uh, Thank you for your words of encouragement. Thank you for your help. Thank you for your financial support. uh, Because one of the biggest pieces of your missions budget is supporting the work in Palos. And so I just wanted to say thank you for your continued commitment to that work. Uh, So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, 
thank you so much for this time to bring this parable, your word, preserved for us for millennia to your people. Father, we pray that you would use this passage of scripture to encourage us, to focus us on what we should be doing, on what you have called us to do. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would fall upon all who are here, opening ears, eyes, hearts, and minds to receive the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to start by asking you to consider a question. It's not a hard question. It's an easy question, hopefully. What are you doing right now? Like, what are you doing right now? This very moment, what are you doing? I give you a moment to just like contemplate the weightiness of that question. What are you doing right now? Maybe you're saying to yourself, that's a pretty simple question, actually. I am sitting in a chair in the Hinsdale Community House. I am listening excitedly and expectantly and with rapt attention to a sermon. Maybe you're saying that anyway. Maybe you're saying, I'm counting the light fixtures on the ceiling. I'm going to not pretend to not notice people who've just looked up to try to see how many there are. Maybe you're saying, well, what I'm actually doing, if I were being completely honest, is I'm thinking about what I have to do the rest of the day. Maybe you're saying, I'm thinking about what I have to do on Monday, what I have to do at work. I got a bunch of work that I put off last week, and I got to get to it this week. Maybe you're saying, well, I've got an exam on Monday or Tuesday that I haven't studied for, or a paper I haven't write, written, so during your sermon, what I'm really going to do is I'm going to think about that, I'm going to organize my thoughts in my head, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attend to that. And so this is one of those questions where, for that part of your answer, there's really no wrong answer, for that part of it anyway. Because every answer that you just came up with is correct, it's, it's accurate in the fact that those are things that you're actually doing. So in that sense, there's no wrong answer. Everybody has their own things that they're doing. But what I want to challenge you with is that answer that you have come up with is at worst incomplete and at most extraordinarily dangerous. And that's the purpose of this parable this morning. The purpose of this parable is is to expose that question, the answer to that question, to the people who are hearing this parable. So at any given time, when a Christian hears that question, what are you doing right now, there should be at least three answers that you have. The first one is what what you just came up with. And now the caveat to that is if you're a mom. If you're a mom, then there's like 17 things, right, that you're doing at any given time, you're, you know, you got a million things going on. It's like managing like a large corporation if you've got small children at home. So you've got 17 things. So for moms, you should have, the answer to that question should always have 19 answers. But there should always be two additional answers. And those two additional answers should actually always start first. The answer to the question, what are you doing right now, should always start with this. I am waiting for the return of the king. And I am investing in his kingdom. 
and I am doing whatever I'm doing right now. And the great part about it is that that last answer is really a part of the second answer. That sh you should see that answer as part of your second, that you are investing in the kingdom of God. That that's what every Christian is supposed to be doing. We're waiting for the return of the king and we're investing in the kingdom of God. And if you don't have those other two answers, that's where your answer becomes very, very problematic and potentially very dangerous. And that's, that's the purpose of what Jesus is doing here in this parable is, is to expose that problem for his hearers. So as my time with Made to Flourish, uh, helping other pastors talk about the interaction and intersection between their faith and their work, one of the individuals I got to work with is this gentleman named Hugh Welchel, who runs uh, the Center for uh, Faith and Work. I got a wonderful website online and a huge portion of the outline for this sermon, I'm actually borrowing from work that Hugh has done. It fits in perfectly with this. This parable of the talents is something that in faith and work circles we talk about a lot because it seems to fit fairly well. And so I'm just going to let you know that I'm going to be borrowing at least generally some of the outline uh, from that. So let's first of all back up and just remind ourselves that we're talking about a parable, right? So the purpose of a parable is to challenge the hearer to think about something in maybe a real challenging way that maybe leads even to a shocking conclusion. One that maybe the hearer doesn't want to have to go to and oftentimes it involves the listener at the end of it being challenged to identify with one of the characters in the parable. And if you're like me, when we hear a story, we want to identify with the hero of the story. That's, that's the person we want to go to. And so the, the thing I want you to think about this morning, is that the person that the hearers of this parable were supposed to identify with? So how does this parable talk about how we, what we're supposed to be doing while we're waiting and investing? And so I would start with this. So it's five-point sermon this morning. I figure I could go out with a bang. Instead of a three-point sermon, I can give you a five-point sermon because I can do anything on my last sermon because this is my last sermon here. So, you know, there you go. Uh, so the first one is that God expects us to invest in his kingdom. That God expects us to invest in his kingdom. So this is good news because what it means is that Jesus has actually given us something to do while we're waiting. There's the expectation that we're doing something while we're waiting. And that he hasn't left us without direction. But if you look at this passage you might initially come to that conclusion. You look at it and you say, well, he doesn't actually tell them what they're supposed to do. He just gives them these talents. He gives one five, he gives another two, he gives another one, but he doesn't tell them what to do with it. He just kind of leaves. And so you, maybe the first question you're asking is, how did they know they were supposed to do something with it? How did they know where they were supposed to invest and try to make something with these talents? Because they knew they knew their master. They understood their master. So he didn't have to tell them what they were supposed to do. They just knew. They knew that this is what he would want. They knew that this is what they were supposed to do. And this idea is creational. It goes back to the very beginning in the garden where God gives Adam and Eve work to do. He says, here's what I need you to do. Rule over the earth. Subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply. 
that he gives them work to do. He's expecting that they're going to cultivate the land and bring about its flourishing. That was part of the creation mandate, and, and the same is true here. So when we read this, and we read that what happened is after he, they left, that they traded, we, we tend to think of something different. So when I was a young boy, my father uh, was a commodity broker. And sometimes after school, I would show up at his business, and he would be calling in the afternoon farm market report. And he, I would hear him say things like, uh, <clears throat> he would say things like this, he would say, uh, box beef cutout values trending at $1 to $1.50 higher at the country points. Peoria trending $2 to $2.25 higher on August contracts. And I'm like, what does that all mean? And he's like, ah, you know, it's just commodities things, people buying and selling and selling short, people buying credit default swaps, treasury bills. Some of you know how this works. That's not what this means. There was not some Chicago Board of Trade or Jerusalem Board of Trade where these three guys rolled down to and they gave some money to the broker and they said, you know, why don't you go buy October, you know, orange juice futures and see what happens to the market. That that's, doesn't happen then. So the word traded had to mean that they were actually having to invest in work, in labor. So maybe they bought land. Maybe they hired workers. Maybe they... Uh, bought a, a small business, whatever it is that they did, that was what this word traded meant, that they, in order to make more money, they had to actually do something with what they had been given, and they had to engage the world. That there was this expectation that they would be working with what they had been given. So this first point of, you know, what are we supposed to be doing while we're waiting? There is the expectation that we are supposed to be investing in the kingdom. And here's, the, here's the part where this, this gets really good news. Everything that we're called to invest in the kingdom, according to this parable, we've been given. Notice they don't have to invest any of their own wealth. They're, they're asked to invest what they've been given by their master. So we have to ask the question now, what exactly have they been given? And remember, this is a parable, so we have to do a little bit of work here. So in the context of this parable, what they've been given is talent. And by that, I don't mean one person could juggle and another person, you know, he could do it as a plumber. Although I'm actually going to kind of move back towards that in a minute. But for the purpose of this, talents was a currency. Okay, so talents, think, think in terms of talents as... As a currency, and a talent, we believe, was equal to about 75 pounds of silver. And I checked the Chicago Board of Trade this morning, and the uh, Friday's close, uh, one ounce of silver was trading at $16.40, which was down about, you know, 22 cents off Thursday's close. So if you have silver futures, the market's trending down, you probably want to sell, or maybe you're selling short and you're making money, and I don't even understand how that works, but suffice it to say that an ounce of silver right now is about $16.40. So if you had 75 pounds of silver, you would have about $19,640, almost, that's, well, it's not almost exactly. That's a lot of money for some of us. But we might also think of it this way. A talent was equal to 6,000 denarii. And a denarii was equal to one day's labor. That was a typical pay for one day's labor. 
So a talent, then, is equal to 6,000 days wages. Think about it that way. 6,000 days of labor is what one talent is. So effectively, that's 20 years. The person who's been given five talents has been given 100 years of wages, and the person who's been given 10 talents has been given 200 years of wages. Imagine that. That's generational wealth. That's the kind of wealth that if you're given, you literally have to do nothing the rest of your life. You can just coast. Think about that. It's generational wealth to these people. But this is the thing. They're not supposed to coast. It's the very thing that they're not supposed to do is just coast on this wealth. They're supposed to do something with it. And so now, in the parable, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is Jesus talking about? Who is he talking to? So in the, in the passage that we're looking at, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. But is he speaking about his disciples? And I want to challenge you that perhaps he's not actually speaking about his disciples, that he's, he's speaking about the Jews in general. And this is where the parable gets very dark and very troubling. That a master is about to go away on a long journey. And he calls his servants forward. And he gives them generational wealth. Unbelievable wealth that they couldn't possibly imagine or ever earn. And he just hands it to them. 20 years of wealth. 50 years of wealth, 100 years of wealth, just hands it to them. What's he talking about? Because he's not talking about money. What have the Jews been given? Fortunately, Paul answers that question for us. Paul says in Romans 9, they are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. That's what they've been given. They should see that, that gift of the promises, of the hope of salvation, ultimately coming in Jesus Christ is the generational wealth that they have been given. And now the parable is asking them, what have you done with it? And now people are getting uncomfortable, which is exactly what happens when you hear the parable of Jesus. Is they're not usually supposed to make you feel like, oh, everything's good for me. They're supposed to challenge you, and this is what the hearers are hearing now. I, my father gave you generational wealth. He handed it to you. You'd done nothing to earn it. It was just a gift. What have you done with it? When Christ comes, what will you say? This is what we've done with the generational wealth that we've been given that we didn't earn that was just handed to us. And now we're going to look a little deeper. Notice that he doesn't give them the same thing. Some of us maybe look at this and we say, well, no, wait a second, that's not necessarily fair. Like, why do one guy get only one talent and one person gets two and the other person, you know, gets... Why are people not getting the same amount of talents here? 
Isn't that exactly how we live most of our lives? Trying to compare ourselves to others. What did others get? You know, when I was a kid and there would be birthday cake, and you would, and I, you know, I remember the first time I got to actually cut the birthday cake, that was like a big deal, you know, cut the birthday cake. You know, and so you're trying to figure out, you know, how to, you kind of want to cut them equal, but you also kind of don't, you know what I mean? And then, you know, my mom, she was a great equalizer. She would say, okay, and now your brother can pick whichever piece he wants. He'd be like, whoa, 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 what? I, this is the piece I'd cut for myself, and now I have to get it. And it was the way my mom's way of making sure that everything was as fair as possible. But in this, we just have him deciding, you get this, you get this, you get that. So often we're stuck with trying to compare ourselves to other people. Maybe we look at somebody else and we say, wow, I have, we have the same gift, but they're so much better at it than me. And we use that to, to say, oh, we're, we're not as good in, in some way as, as that person. How come I'm not as good at that kind of comparison that we do? You know what? Some people are just faster than you. Some people are just better at math than you. Some people are just better at things than you are. That's just the way it works. Some people are just naturally gifted. I could play the, you know, learn how to play the guitar probably 10 years from now, and I wouldn't be close to as good as Brent is. Just, he's just naturally talented at that. And so we, we have to not compare the, the kind of the level or the, the quantity of gifts. And we also have to be okay with the diversity of gifts. Some people are given gifts to use for investing in the kingdom of God that we've not been given. We've been given others, but everybody's been given something. Everybody has been given some gift to invest in the kingdom of God. To advance that kingdom. And so maybe this morning what you're going to do is you're going to take a little bit of a kind of mental inventory. What, what gifts do you have that you've been given to advance the kingdom of God? So that when Christ comes back, you'll say, see, see what I did with the gifts that you've given me. And here's where we're going to make this shift, right? So now we're not just talking about the largesse of the gifts, of the knowledge of hope and the promises that come in Christ Jesus, but we've actually been given something to advance those with. And what are those for you? Maybe some of you have been given this gift of, of compassion. Some of you have been given gifts of hospitality or, or mercy or administrative skills. I gotta tell you, um, administrative skills are not a skill that I have. When they were handing those out, I went to the back of the line and then like got distracted and missed the handing out of them completely. And so I am thankful for people who've been given this gift. It's a huge blessing to me when people uh, do things like Wayne Dingler does every single week. He organizes the MailChimp and gets it ready for me to go in and kind of do the few things that I do so that it can go out on time. That's a gift that he gives me. He has that gift of administration. Shelley Baldridge does that as well. That's a gift that she has that is being used for the advancement and the flourishing of the kingdom. And so God expects us to invest in the kingdom. He gives us everything he calls us to invest. And he doesn't give us all the same things. 
And yet, we're all investing for the same thing. You notice in this passage what happens is when, when the master returns, all of the servants knowingly go to him and say, look, you gave me this and I, I returned this to you. I, I made more. I, I doubled it. And the next servant comes and says, you, you gave me less, but I still worked. I still did something with it. And look, here I have this to give back to you. And then you have the third servant come and he says, yeah, I, I knew you were basically a horrible boss. You were the worst boss ever. You're like the, the, the boss on the office. You're just horrible. And so I, I just took everything you gave me and I just, I just shoved it in a hole. And then I buried it. Now, what you have to do now is you have to conjure up this image of the size of that hole. Right? 75 pounds of silver is what he buried in a hole. That's a lot of work to bury 75 pounds of silver, right? It's not like he dug a little hole in his backyard and dropped a little sack in there. 75 pounds of silver in there. That's a lot of work. He put a lot of effort into doing nothing. You're supposed to think about that. The parable is conjuring that idea. He, this guy spent a lot of work and a lot of effort to do nothing. In fact, he tried to do as little as possible. It's like, I just give you back what you gave me. I hid it. And now we get this sense of why he's the bad servant. See, these other two servants, they understood their master. They knew what their master wanted. They understood, I've been given generational wealth. I'm not supposed to coast on it. I'm supposed to invest. I'm supposed to do something with it. When this last servant comes forward, he says, ah, you know, I, I didn't do anything with what you gave me. I, I, well, I did. I, I, I dug a hole and I hid it so that nobody at all could possibly benefit from it in any way. I just put it in a hole. And now if you're the hearer of this parable, you should be terrified. Because if he's talking about the Jews, this is not good. I gave you unbelievable riches. I gave you adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, who is Christ, who is God over all. That's what I gave to you. And you know what you did with it? You hid it. You hid it in a hole so that nobody could see it know anything about it, have any benefit from it. In fact, you went out of your way to make sure that the blessing of what I gave you touched no one. You're wicked. That's the purpose of this parable. That's the purpose of this parable is to make us uncomfortable this morning. Because if you're a Jew and you're hearing this, you want really badly to identify with any one of the first two servants. But that's not who they're supposed to identify with. What they're supposed to do is go, uh, uh-oh, I think I might be the third servant because I've been given the good news of the gospel, the hope and the promises that come to me through Jesus Christ and I've actually gone out of my way to do nothing with it at all. And that's why Jesus can say, you're wicked. 
take everything that's been given to you and give it to somebody else. This is why this passage now begins to be scary, but even to make sense. And so what this passage is doing this morning is it's inviting us to ask ourselves some questions. What are we, as a congregation, as Christians, investing our time, our talents, and our treasure in accomplishing? Because what we're all doing, every single person who's sitting here this morning listening to a sermon, trying to figure out what you're going to do next week and how you're going to get through the day, you are waiting, we are waiting on the return of Jesus Christ and we are investing in his kingdom. That's what we're doing. We've all been given different levels of gifts to accomplish that investing in the kingdom, but it's what we're all supposed to be doing so that when he returns, we can say, all that you gave me, I did not deserve. And I spent my whole life waiting for you to return so I could show you what I have done with it because I understood who you were and who you are as my loving, steadfast God of love and faithfulness who's given me these unbelievable riches in Christ. And so I've spent my life trying to advance your kingdom. And so we ask ourselves, what does this mean in our homes? What does it mean for ourselves to know that we have the benefits of the gospel? That our salvation is not in how well we raise our children to like accomplish a high score on the ACT or get them into the right college or anything like that. It is how do we raise our children to understand the benefits of the gospel. That's the purpose of us as parents. To teach them diligently. To communicate God's word to them. To, to teach them what it means to live as Christian people in the church and outside of the church. What does it mean for us to do that as parents? To see that as investing in the kingdom of God. What does it mean for us to do that in our workplaces? Whether we're accountants or traders or... Uh, uh, computer software engineers or stay-at-home moms, what does it mean for us to say, I have been given the benefits of the gospel. I've been given special and unique gifts to proclaim that, whatever they are. And every day when I go into the workplace, I communicate to those people who work with me and around me that their work was designed and intended to be offered to God as worship. And as a manager, I'm doing everything in my power to make sure that they might have a sense that that's how I see their work. That if you're an administrator, you're understanding that your ability to administer and maybe manage your boss's calendar or, or do accounting, that people's lives hang in the balance on that, that people are able to be employed and provide for their families, and God wants that. God wants people to be provided for. He wants them to be paid accurately for their work. So your work, your gifts, you should see that as you're not just going to work and doing the drudgery or whatever it is that you're doing every day, that maybe you see as drudgery, what you should be seeing it is, I'm going to work every day and I'm investing in the kingdom of God. And you're not just investing in Nestle, you're investing in the kingdom of God. See it that way. It's one of the things that's exciting for me about going to Washington, D.C. and helping staffers. So I don't know if you've heard, if you watch the news at all, Washington, D.C. is a bit of a mess right now. There's a little bit of chaos going on there. 
There's a little bit of tension. There's a little bit of strife going on in Washington, D.C. Imagine what it must be like for the staffers of these congressmen and senators who are trying to figure out how do I live and survive and what I'm doing matter. I'm encouraged about going, being able to come alongside them and for the Christians to be able to say, listen, you're in, you're, you've been given unbelievable generational wealth in the gospel. Let me help you understand how to live that out in your daily life. And maybe even to non-Christians to be able to say, listen, I, I see what you're doing here. And it, maybe it seems like drudgery, but it could be so much more if you understood it from the way God sees what you're doing. What does it mean for us to invest in our communities with the gospel? So yesterday, my wife and I, our family, we were down, uh, downtown at St. Patrick's Day Parade. Uh, and there were some folks down there with bullhorns. And you would think that downtown uh, at the St. Patrick's Day Parade, the people with bullhorns would be directing traffic. But they were not. What they were doing was telling me and everybody around us that we needed to repent or we were all going to burn in the fires of hell forever. And that God was very angry with us. They were quoting all kinds of scripture at us. One of them, we, we stopped after the parade. We went and got in line to get a, a Chicago dog. And one of them actually came up behind my daughter Phoebe with his bullhorn in the line and put the bullhorn right behind her head and said, are you a Christian little girl? Now, I'd love to paint this picture of you for you of me as a gracious, kind person at this moment. But at this moment, my daughter's being accosted by somebody. And so I turned around and I said, you know, dude, you're really killing our cause here. And he said, what? What are you talking, are you, even, are you a Christian? I said, yes, I'm, I'm an ordained minister. I'm an evangelical Christian. I believe in the Bible and you're killing our cause. This is not helping anybody what you're doing. He goes, well, the Bible tells me to do this. I said, well, let, let's talk about that for a minute. In scripture, there are absolutely places where the prophetic word comes out. We see it in, uh, in John the Baptist, right? We see it Peter at Pentecost. And I said to him, I said, in those cases where this kind of language is being used, do you know who it's being used at in scripture every single time? The church. It's being used at Jews. It was asking Jews to repent of their religion and accept the promises and get back to the center of what it was supposed to be. I said, every single time in Scripture where non-Christians, especially in Acts, are being confronted with the gospel, it's done in a loving and kind way. Paul at the Areopagus is expounding to the philosophers in reasonable terms such that they want him to come back the next day. Nobody wanted these people to come back at all. When Jesus sees the woman at the well who's sleeping around, she is so touched by his love for her that she goes and gets the rest of her community that's ostracized her, that forces her to not go to the well when all the rest of the women go. She has to go at midday because she's being ostracized. His love for her is such that she thinks maybe this is the person we're waiting for. So I said to him, I said, man, I really wish you would take some different approach because this one, this is not how we proclaim the riches of Christ that we've been given to our communities. It's turning people off. And then finally, we're held accountable for what we've been given. We see, we see this in the, 
in the wicked servant. He's like, go away from me to the place where there's gnashing of teeth. But to those who understand what they've been given, that everything has come to them as a free gift of God, and that what they were called to do was to use that to invest in the kingdom, to proclaim the kingdom, to advance the kingdom. Here's what Jesus says to them. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. It doesn't matter whether, you know, I gave you this much and, you know, you made $5 million or you made $2 million or you had 20 conversions or you had one conversion or you helped your company flourish more or you did a good job at parenting at home it doesn't matter what that is as long as you understood that the riches that I gave you you did nothing to earn but I handed them to you as long as you understand that the gospel is all that you need and you've done something that says yeah I understand the benefits of the gospel and so I'm going to proclaim it to those around me what you hear is well done good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your master. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what all of us want to be able to hear. Well done. Thank you for investing the promises of hope that you've been given to those around you in your homes, in your workplaces, in your community. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what we're called to do. That's how we're called to live as Christians in this world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Father, we do repent of the fact that so often we think that our work is about us. We think that we need to advance ourselves and our careers and our children and our families so that we will be accepted before you. And yet, Father, the gospel tells us that's not at all the case. That what we are called to do is to realize what you have given us, which is the gospel. And to proclaim it to those around us. And so, Father, help us to focus on the good news of the gospel every single day. The fact that we have been given unimaginable wealth. Not of our own doing, but because you loved us. In Christ's name, amen. Hear the good news of the gospel this morning. David prayed to God saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Hear the good news. In Jesus Christ, God has answered David's prayer. In Jesus, we are washed clean from our sin. Thanks be to God.